The infamous coffin ship has long been an emblem of Ongortha Moor, the Great Famine, symbolising the many Irish migrants who sought to escape that catastrophe. Historian Dr. Keen McMahon offers a fresh perspective on an oft-ignored but vital component of the migration experience, the journey itself. In his book, The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea During the Great Irish Famine, he looks in detail at the lived experiences of Irish people aboard emigrant vessels and convict ships, crossing the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans between 1845 and 1855. Earlier, I spoke to Keen about his book and Irish emigration to North America and Australia during this period. Why a book on the coffin ship? I got the idea for this book years and years ago uh, when I was still working on my PhD in Pittsburgh. And I attended a talk by Professor Marcus Redeker, who was writing a book on the slave ship. And he had found the way to tell the story of the social conditions and the experiences of slaves on board a ship in a way that told their story and that made us kind of understand their experiences. And as I walked home from that talk that night, I asked myself, like, what would a book like that on Irish history look like? And suddenly the coffin ship just dawned on me because it was a phrase that I had heard growing up in Dublin in the 70s and 80s. It was a part of kind of Irish cultural memory. But I had a feeling that the story of of emigration during the famine was probably more complicated. I will say that Marcus Redeker's challenge was that he was writing about the slaves who had been silenced by the captains and crews and who left no sources behind. I knew from my own work that there were lots of letters and diaries out there uh, left behind by famine-era immigrants. So I hoovered them all up, spent a few years reading them, and wrote down what I found in the book. And does the phrase coffin ship have legitimacy at the time, during the famine, the immediate post-famine period? Did people write about, did people talk about coffin ships? The phrase coffin ship was a paradox in that as I was beginning my research on this, I would see the phrase used all the times in books and articles written years later by historians, but I rarely found it at the time, like never. I thought this was curious, and it started to get me uh, suspicious that perhaps it was possible that the coffin ships was actually a trope, a, a phrase, a term that had been employed years later as a way, as a remembering the famine, you know. Now, of course, you have to be able to read lots of newspapers to be able to, to make an argument like that or to find out the truth. But in the days, nowadays of digitized newspapers, I could actually uh, quite rapidly find out uh, when the term was popularized. So it is true that the term coffin ship was bouncing around in the British and Irish press in the years before the famine. And it is true that it was used once or twice during the famine itself. But it's not until 1870s when an English parliamentary, an MP uh, named Samuel Plimsoll, is fighting for the rights of working people and sailors in England in the early 1870s. And he seizes upon this phrase, the coffin ship, and he uses it for workers' rights. In Ireland, Irish nationalists 
first start to adopt it as a way to point out the problems with British, another example of British misgovernment, but then they employ it themselves to remember back and to describe the emigrant ships. So what does preparation to emigrate involve? The first thing I will say is that unlike many books in the past that have been on emigration during the famine, I wanted this book to be based on the voices of the immigrants themselves. And so I used their letters and diaries, although, of course, I did use newspapers, government reports, landlord papers to fill out the picture. But I wanted it to be from the perspective of the immigrants themselves. And as I was organizing the book, I realized that that perspective of looking at it from the perspective of the immigrant themselves would have to shape the table of contents. Right? We have to think of this as a journey. I want to take the reader on a journey. So the first chapter looks at how you prepare to leave. Preparing to leave essentially involves scraping together the money for fares for yourself and for your family to get overseas. And I found that there were a number of strategies that people employed. The first and most popular was, of course, remittances from friends and family. Now, it's very difficult to give clear percentages of how many people went by themselves, how many had remittances, how many had landlords, partly because nobody was keeping those statistics, but also, Miles, because they overlapped in many ways. So I'll give you an example. There's a 14-year-old girl in the workhouse in Gort, and her mother was in Boston, and her mother sent back the fare for this girl to get from Gort to Boston. But the mother only had the money to pay for the main leg of the journey from Liverpool to Boston. And in the letter, the mother said, do you think you could find enough money in your budget to ju- if you just get her to Liverpool? That's the kind of creativity and ingenuity that gets lost in a lot of stories of immigration. How did that mother know that they would probably pay the rest of the fare, you know? Was it through word of mouth? Was it her own experience? Uh, had she seen people uh, getting help themselves? So the, there's a lot of overlap in terms of how people get the funds, yeah. You mentioned landlords, and obviously there was landlord-assisted emigration where landlords actually paid for their tenants to leave Ireland and, and, and not come back. That wasn't altruistic, though, most of the time, was it? Altruism is probably not a word I would use to describe that. But I would say it's also not true that many of these emigrants were going against their will. As you know from your own work as an historian, landlords are tasked with paying poor rates on small, on tiny farms. So they are essentially feeding and clothing people in the workhouse with these poor rates. And so very, very, very small farmers are a cost uh, for landlords. And so enabling those to leave makes sense. But here's the other thing. If your farm is actually decent sized, I think it's four or five pounds valuation, then you're paying your poor rates. And so for some of the better off farmers, it also made sense to pack up and go. I looked at the estate papers of the Wandersford family in Kilkenny in some detail. I was shocked by the mountains of petitions that Wandesford got, which are still on Kildare Street in the National Library today. You can go down and look at them yourself, of farmers 
saying, I heard that you're thinking of, of paying the fare for people to leave. Is there any chance that I could get in on that? Now, again, there's overlap. So sometimes they'll say, a family member has sent over some money. I just need a little bit extra. You need food. You need a little bit extra food for the ship if you can, because the you're entitled to a basic minimum, but that basic minimum is barely keep you alive. You need warm clothing. People are preparing by, by getting a coat. But in the petitions, I, I, I'll give you an example. Families had been living on these lands for, for centuries, and they sometimes referred to their ancestry when petitioning. And so there was a great story by one of them, which was the Brennans, who had been farming and mining, actually. This is near Castle Comer. And in his petition, Michael Brennan says, I beg to inform you that myself and my father and my grandfather and my ancestors have all lived on this estate. But being no longer able to maintain my family, which numbers seven, I would wish to emigrate with them to America if you, sir, would be so kind as to give me a passage. Centuries of tenure could end with a free passage abroad. Was there reluctance to accept money from landlords to get off the land. I mean, I know that in the case of the Marquis of Lansdowne in and around Kenmare, the agent there, Trench, would claim or would have claimed that they were clamouring for the assisted emigration money. But if you then look at Strokestown and you look at the, the Mahan estate, there was very obvious reluctance to accept money from the landlord to emigrate. So, you know, where's the truth there? Yeah, the truth is that it's very complicated and that it depends on different estates with different tenants, with different relationships with their landlords. And also within a given estate, it it depends on individual families. The Mahan estate is a dark spot in this history. Historian James Donnelly has said, can we really use the word free choice for emigrants who were caught essentially between three options, eviction, emigration, or death? And so by again focusing on the words and ideas of the emigrants themselves, I wanted to bring back their bravery and their humanity and not look at them as lost and and, and isolated and hopeless pawns. I will say that in some of their petitions, uh, some of the prospective emigrants said, I heard that my neighbor is emigrating. Can I have his farm? And if not, can I emigrate? So there's a, a certain amount of negotiation going on. Embarkation then is the next part of the process. Did that always involve a trip across the Irish Sea to Liverpool if you were going to the USA or Canada? No, there were ships that left uh, directly from Ireland and the various ports around Ireland, and then Liverpool was the main. Some went went from Glasgow, but if you're going to North America, Liverpool is probably the the port you're passing through, and I think the statistic is something like about 75% of Irish immigrants during this time passed through Liverpool. The thing is, is that as the numbers of immigrants are leaving, smaller ports are being pressed into service and seeing more activity than would be on a usual season or in a usual year. And there's absolutely no way that the government has any way to oversee and regulate that trade. How long typically does it then take to sail from wherever you're sailing from to, to Canada or to the United States? 
an average journey would take anywhere from if you're very lucky and everything's fantastic four weeks to six weeks there are cases of course of ships that were out for months but that is very rare these ships are essentially passing on maritime highways that have been used for centuries and so while we think of the Atlantic as this wild, rugged, open, lost space, uh, the sailors and captains know exactly where they are, where they need to go, and how things are going, yeah. We tend to talk a lot about emigration to North America, but we you know, fail to realise or fail to take account of the, a lot of emigration or a certain amount of emigration to Australia. Now, was passage to Australia in general involuntary? Were you on a convict ship a la the fields of Athenry? No, most of the people who went to Australia during the famine were people who went as, as free emigrants. Although, of course, there were several thousand who, who went as convicts. One of the things that surprised me uh, when I started researching this was that a, a number of convicts actually committed petty, so non-violent crimes, on purpose to get a free passage. They recognized that there were ships regularly sailing to Australia. They recognized they didn't have the money to afford a spot on one, so they committed crimes. I stumbled upon this because when I started my research, I thought I would just look at one surgeon's journal just to see if I could learn anything interesting. And in it, the surgeon complained that ah sure there's this one this one fellow's got you know a terrible cough or whatever and uh he hid it from me because he wanted to sail with his brother who's on the same ship so i thought oh two brothers on the same ship and then i thought wait a second so people were lying to get onto the ship now what he what he said was he, he he hid the cough they they went through a very basic medical screening before getting on the ship but that cracked the door to, for me to think about people on convict ships. Then I started digging into it. And, of course, unsurprising, once you start looking, I found amazing things. I mean, I, I found uh, people who committed crimes on purpose. Uh, there's two sisters. I, I love these two sisters, Joanna and Mary Kelleher, uh, who were in Cork. Their mother was convicted for, again, a petty theft and uh, was sentenced to seven years' transportation. The sisters ran out that day and stole two shirts with the intention of getting the same judge while he's there to sentence them and put them on the same ship. The judge says, ah, it was only two shirts, I'll give you 12 months in prison. So the two teenage girls, they're seeing, mum's going to be leaving, you know, you don't leave the next day, like, mum's leaving soon, and we're doing 12, 12 months in, in the court jail. These two sisters write a petition to the Lord Lieutenant in Dublin Castle, like the acme of executive power. And they say, look, here's what happened. <laughs> here's what happened. And they tell him, and they include a petitions from their local priests. I know these are great girls, like they only wanted the free trip, you know. The judge who convicted them said, I had no idea. I'd listen, let them off. So they asked that their sentence be commuted and that they be sent with their mother on the ship as convicts. And the petition, the answer comes back, yeah, go on the ship with mom, but just go as free settlers. Another woman was in uh, Newtonards, 
she stole the shirt so she'd get transported. Her child was put into workhouse and she was put in prison. Another petition. Listen, this has gone all wrong. I was trying to emigrate. Can I get back with my child? Like, can you commute my sentence? Can you? And they said, nah, we'll just send you. We'll just send you down to Australia as an assisted immigrant. And so the convict ships are actually very complicated places. When there's up to 20 to 25 to 30 percent of the people on a convict ship are not convicts. And I'm not talking about the crew. I mean, we're taking them for granted. The guards who were guarding, it's not sailors guarding the convicts, it's guards. The guards bring their families. They're not coming back. So in that way, it, it's the ingenuity, it's the, it's the bravery of these folks that's just been lost for years behind the, the cardboard cutout, as I call it, of the coffin ship. Is a 20% fatality rate part of that cardboard cutout, or did around one-fifth of those who made passage across the Atlantic, did they die? The 20% number has been bouncing around actually since the famine years. Uh, Daniel O'Connell's son, John O'Connell, who, as you know, was an, M- was an MP, he threw that statistic around in 1850 in Parliament. And the part of the problem is, is that we take 1847 as the only year worth talking about. If you look at the bell curve of Irish migration during the famine, right, from 45, 1845, and the blight, blight first breaks out and people say, okay, I'm getting out of here, until 1850, it takes until 1855 until that, that bell curve gets back down to pre-famine levels, which is less than 70,000 a year. The top of the bell curve is in 51, 52. So as the blight's ending, and as the famine is quote-unquote over, certainly excess mortality is after 1852. We don't have more deaths by uh, starvation or disease in Ireland. That's when emigration is peaking. And so 1847 is an important year, but it's not by any stretch of the imagination the biggest year. So let's not just say that 1847 is the only year, because it's not. It's one of 10 years, and it's not the biggest in terms of sheer numbers. Okay, but what about 1847? When the British government was accepting, or the government agents in Canada were accepting, they had a fellow, Irish-born, A.C. Buchanan, who's the chief emigration officer in, in Quebec. And his job is to take down how many ships came in, what was that ship, where did it come from, how many people got on it, how many died, how many were born. Yeah. So he's collecting all these statistics, and then he's sending them back to London, and they're being published So we have fantastic records for statistics on deaths, primarily to Canada. Now, the statistics on the United States are not good, but there are other historians who've written about it and who say that New York was no... 1847 was not... There was no spike in mortality in deaths to New York in 1847. Cholera hits in 1849. That's a different... But it's it's a bump. It's not a spike. The statistics that I've... Again, using Buchanan, who's like, painstakingly, I'm talking ship by ship, it's pages and pages, I I crunched numbers and I found that if we take all of the people who left from Ireland and Liverpool and sailed to Canada in 1847, the mortality rate is a little over 10%. So the real answer is closer to 10%. The statistics on mortality are fascinating because it's not a matter of 10% of people on all ships died. It's that some ships were terrible. 
Some ships weren't very good, and loads of ships were fine. Let's not minimize 11%. That's incredible. I mean, that's, that's on par with, with slave ships in the 1700s. So I, I want to be clear on that. I, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing the suffering on, on those ships. But you do record instances where people, when they get off the ships, they are very, very grateful and they're very thankful to the crew and the captains. Yeah, because it's not well regulated, you have a really different experience on different ships. So some captains, for example, are cruel. They don't give out enough food. And then do you know what they do when they get to Quebec? They sell it. They pocket the cash. They split it with the sailors. There are captains who do that. There are other captains who are very thoughtful and kind. And you're referring to some of these resolutions which were published in newspapers at the time, in which when, when emigrants got off the ship, they went down to the local newspaper and said, listen, we want to take out an ad in the paper. And we want to thank our captain and his crew for doing such a great job. What I found fascinating was that in the way as they're describing that gratitude, they're describing it in the context of other emigrants before and after them. They're saying to other emigrants, read this ad, look for this ship captain, he's one of the good ones. And as such, emigrants on these ships are recognizing themselves as part of something bigger, as part of a broader community. And that's ultimately what I found the book was about. I, th I thought the book was about how people survived at sea, and, and there's loads of that on that. But I really learned it was actually about people recovering relationships after the famine. In conclusion, is the real picture more complex than the narratives of Paddy's Green Shamrock Shore, the fields of Athenry, thousands are sailing? You'd be hard-pressed to find me uh, speak against anything by the Pogues. I'll start with that, uh, Philip Chevron, amazing job with that song. The answer is yes, but as I said, I didn't pursue these questions because I wanted to minimize the experience. There's a lot of sadness and there's a lot of loss. But I also felt that by reducing emigrant ships to that two-dimensional cardboard cutout image of the coffin ship. What I and others had done inadvertently was to turn the people themselves into two-dimensional cardboard cutouts from the past. I went to school in the 1970s and 80s in Dublin. It was smash the H-blocks, it was the hunger strikes, it was, and it was Ethiopia in the famine in 1984. I could see the ways in which the coffin ships was part of a broader conversation, we'll say, about, about things that, that needed to change in Ireland. But as I thought about it more and more, I also realized that we had dehumanized the very people that we cared so much about. And I took on this project as my own humble way to try and bring their voices back and to have their voices heard again for the first time in a long time. Kian McMahon, thank you for talking to us. Thanks very much, Miles. And that was Kian McMahon. His book is called The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea During the Great Irish Famine. It's published by New York University Press. 
That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher, Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.